This morning, we will be in Revelation uh, chapter 15. So I want to invite you to turn there with me. There should be some notes that have gone around. And the title of this morning's message is uh, Heaven's Peace and Perfect Justice. Um, If you're visiting with us, I know every week we have several visitors. Um, I'm not the regular guy. Um, My name's Alan. I'm one of the the pastors. Um, Pastor Billy this week has the privilege of serving one of our other sister churches um, in Texas. And so he's down there this weekend serving them. Um, And I have the, the joy and privilege to be able to bring you the word this morning. Last week, Pastor Billy helped us see the clear contrast in chapters 13 and 14 between being marked by the lamb and being marked by the beast. And with this idea of being marked as just a symbol of your submission to and trust in someone, whether the lamb or the beast. As we come to chapters 15 and 16, that contrast continues with a picture of the presence of God in heaven and the wrath of God on earth. So let's read. This is a long section, so I'm not going to ask you to, sit, to, to stand, but um, we will read Revelation 15 and 16. Sorry, I had it turned to the wrong spot. Revelation 15, this is the word of the Lord. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come to worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. Harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you had given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds." 
The sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the Lord, of of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh, bowl poured out his, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is a tough passage, but the grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our Lord stands forever. Lord, we pray that you would Help this passage to come to bear on our lives now. Help us to see what thinking and living needs to be adjusted in light of what we see here. And may your word have its intended effect upon our hearts. As I seek to communicate it in fallen speech and language and difficulties. And oh Lord, accomplish more than these words could ever accomplish on my own. Accomplish that for your purpose what you intend. And we avail our hearts to you and say, God, speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, I I am, uh, if you didn't know, I'm a home inspector. This is not a sales pitch or anything, but I am a home inspector. So my full-time job is doing home inspections. And so I'm often having to, to talk to people about certain deficiencies, certain problems on a house that they're buying. And a big question they always have, well, is how, how big of a problem is this? And, um, and many times, there's, the answer is some version of, well, it's not a problem until it is a problem. So, for instance, like a, an electrical panel that's known to be defective and failed and has been recalled. And, you know, if we find that, we say, well, it should be replaced. Well, how big of a problem is it? Well, because the breakers fail. And so if the circuit's overloaded, uh, the wire might melt or catch on fire uh, or the breaker might blow up or your house might burn to the ground. Um, now, I don't always say it that way, but... Um, and then, and then they get a look of alarm, and then I say, but that hasn't happened in 60 years. The panel's been here for 60 years, and it hasn't happened. And then they breathe a sigh of relief, and I say, yet. And then they're back to panicky. So, you know, electrical's not something to play around with. Is it a problem? Well, it's not a problem until it's a problem, right? Getting struck by lightning's not a problem until you get struck by lightning. So there's a lot of things that it's not a problem until it is a It could be a problem. And... You know, when we read about the judgments of God, as we see in these passages, um, we wonder, is this really a problem? We can think that maybe God is just, ju- uh, is just cruel or wrong or harsh. Or we can think that his judgment is actually a problem for someone else out there. But it's definitely not a problem for me. It's definitely not a problem for the people that I know and love. I know for me personally, as a Christian, I don't live under the reality that wrath and judgment are what I deserve 
because of my sin and because of God's holiness? I need scripture to remind me of that. I need songs to remind me of that reality. Nor do I live under the reality that God's wrath and judgment are still aimed at people that I know and love, many of those around me. So as a Christian even, I can just move through life not wanting to think much about these hard truths and choosing to focus on other things. And so I can, by default, begin to live as if it's not really a problem. It's like the, the panel in the garage that has never been an issue that I don't need to really worry about, but that one day could become an issue. And these chapters in Revelation are one way that God is seeking to get our attention about the issues that are, are threatening us, that, are, that we are facing because of our sin. We can see that in Revelation 16 verse 17. If you look there, I think that's really the point of these two chapters where Jesus interjects, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So what's the point of all of this? How did the Holy Spirit intend these chapters to impact John's readers and therefore us? Well, that's it right there, that we might stay awake and keep our garments on, <laughs> which sounds funny on, it, on its face, but we will get into that and see what that means as we go. Those are word pictures about being clear-headed about the realities of heaven and hell and judgment and clinging in faith to Jesus to the very end. So, these chapters present us with both the joy and comfort of heaven, and oh, may it be that for us as we look at this, and the reality of coming judgment. Both are here in these chapters, but I would bet the majority of us, uh, like me, come up short on our understanding of both of these. We often typically think heaven is not really as glorious as it really is, Maybe we think it's, it actually sounds kind of boring. I mean, there's the reference here to harps. Are we just floating on clouds playing harps in heaven? You know, we can think of heaven as not really as glorious as it is. We can think of wrath and judgment and hell as being not really that big of a deal. And we can think of life on earth in the here and now as where our true joy should be found. But we have it all backwards, don't we? Until scripture reorients us to reality as God sees it. Because here's reality as God sees it. Heaven is more glorious than we realize. Judgment is more serious than we realize. And this world is more empty than we realize. The picture of heaven in chapter 15 and the picture of wrath in chapter 16 are meant to make us consider where will we be found in the end if the end were to happen right now. So like last week, where we saw we're either marked by the beast or we're marked by the lamb. So the main point for today is that God's glory in salvation and judgment should compel us to pursue him now and cling to him to the very end. So just ask you at the beginning, what are you clinging to? You know, as I mentioned, praise God for the first steps towards overturning abortion in our country. But listen, political progress, even on something as important as the sanctity of human life, is not ultimately where our hope lies. Our hope must be in Jesus. We cling to Him to the very end, no matter how bad or how good things may seem to get. We can thank God for the blessings He provides, and we should. But we can't put our hope 
in the blessings that God provides. We put our hope in Jesus. And that's what these passages are calling us to. So God's glory and salvation and judgment should compel us to pursue him now and cling to him alone. And this text will help us to see God's glory in salvation and judgment. In fact, the whole section is surrounded by scenes of his glory. The the glory and wonder of his mercy. The glory and justice of his judgment. Both mercy and justice are emerging from this eternal, infinite perfection in God. So we want to see that glory. We want to see it. That we might pursue him now and cling to him to the very end. So we see that glory in two ways. Point number one, the mercy of God seen in salvation. You look at verse one, it sets the stage for what's about to follow in these two chapters. That these two chapters are, it says, the last of the plagues, for with them the wrath of God is finished, which is a word that means completed. So what's about to follow then is a depiction of the end of the world. The very end. It's, it's the very end of the world that's in view here. It's ominous. It's vivid. It's scary. It's weird. It's all of those things. It strikes us as uncomfortable as we read it as it should. After all, we're talking about the end of the world and the final events leading up to it. But that's not actually where the scene begins. It, the scene actually begins in heaven. And so there are two parts to this scene in heaven. And in part one, I summarize that as God's people sing of his mercy. Look at verse two. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Let's stop there. This is the second time we see this sea of glass. The first time was back in chapter four, where it was described there as the crystal sea. Remember that? Throughout scripture, the sea represents this place of turmoil and chaos. It's equated with fear and danger and the unknown. It's the place of threat in the ancient world. But in heaven, notice, the sea is none of those. The sea is glass. It's perfectly calm. In God's presence, perfect love, the Bible tells us, cast out all fear. I think all of that is bound up in this image of of a sea of glass that he brings calm and peace and shalom to his people. Those who have been martyred for their faith are standing beside this sea. They're not cowering in fear from the sea like the ancient world would have. But they're taking their place in heaven in the presence of the Lamb who calms all our fears and who has calmed the sea. But it's not just that. It's at least that. But in chapter 15 here, verse 2, the sea is also said to be mingled with fire. Which seems to be a reference to the coming wrath of God. It's heaven's peace, the calm sea, and perfect justice, the fire. So that's where a line from a song, Here is Love, um, also the title of the sermon, that's where that's coming from. These two things, heaven's peace, perfect justice, coming together, a sea of glass mingled with fire and gathered around this sea was God's people. Now, what are they doing as they gather around? Well, it tells us they have instruments in their hands. They have harps and they are singing. It's what God's people do when they gather in his presence. And here's the good news about this. In heaven, we don't have tired minds and shrinking bladders and sore throats and wayward hearts distracting us from singing to God. We will find ourselves in God's presence and we will sing. See, it's not enough for God's people to just 
mentally affirm the great works of God. It's not enough to read about the works of God uh, on the screen or in your Bible. It's not even enough to talk about the works of God with other believers. We should be doing all of those things. But when God redeems a person, he doesn't just redeem a brain. He redeems the person's mouth and voice and emotions and heart and body. And so true worship is submitting our whole selves to him. All of our being. And God tells us to sing praises to him. So singing isn't just something we do at the start of a service. Because that's what we've always done. Like it's a tradition. It's not just a strategy to warm you up for the the good part or something like that. Or make us feel something so that we want to come back next week. That's not why we gather to sing. Like like we're here hoping to get a hit. Like a, a dope fiend hoping to get the next hit out of the singing or something like that. We sing. No, that, that's not why we do it. Why We sing because singing is going on in heaven. And God's people have a reason to sing. All of God's people are doing it. In heaven. It's not just the gifted and talented. It's not just the musical. And so it's the same for us. So what does it mean if you're not a singer? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But some people can't carry a tune in the bucket, right? I, I, was, I don't even know why I'm on the worship team. When I was a teenager, I was try, describing a song to a guy. And he said, are you singing it or telling me the words? So that's, uh, that's how it is for me. So what if you're not a singer? And you're a Christian. What should you do? Do you leave the singing to the other people that, that can sing? Well, I mean, let's be honest. Okay, you might not lead worship and join the worship team and put a microphone in your hand if you're not a singer. But you can and should unite your voice with the other Christians around you and sing God's praises. And here's why. Bob Coughlin said it this way. The critical question is not, do I have a voice? But do I have a song? And if you're a true worshiper, forgiven and reconciled to God through the atoning work of Christ, the answer is a resounding yes. You have a song. And we get a glimpse of this song that's happening around the throne of heaven. And what we see is that those saints are singing. Every one of them has a song. Do you have a song today? See, when we hear one another singing, as we often do, and I I loved hearing us sing this morning. Um, And the voice is just ringing out. It's so beautiful and wonderful. But it's not just that it's pretty and it's cool or something like that. When we hear one another singing, we are reminded of God's mercy upon us. And it compels us to sing, doesn't it? It makes us want to sing. And we realize that all of the imperfections of maybe our bad singing kind of get lost in the mix of the, the corporate singing. And it's a picture of the gospel itself. That, that God takes what is broken and brings something beautiful out of it. That's what Jesus is doing with all of our lives. And so we have to realize we have a song worth singing. These saints did. We see it in verse 3. And they're singing two things. It tells us in verse 3 that they're singing the song of Moses. Which was a song about being released from bondage in Egypt. And triumphing over their enemy Pharaoh. You could go there and look at it some other time in Exodus chapter 15. It just recounts God's accomplishments for his people over and over and over. They're singing that song, but they're also singing, it says, the song of the Lamb. Now this is the Lamb from chapter 4 who is worthy and who was slain and who by his blood ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And of course that comes out in verses 3 and 4 when we see the lyrics of the song they're singing. 
In verse 3, we, we see that God is praised for His works, for what He does, that he, he has done, He has performed great and amazing deeds. It also ends with that same idea. Your righteous acts have been revealed. See, God is praised for His works. He's not only praised for His works, He's praised for His ways. Just and true are your ways, it says. It's not just what He does that's praiseworthy, but it's how He does it that's praiseworthy too. Sometimes we can think, well, I'm okay if God brings this providence into my life, but I wish he would do it a different way. God is praised here, not just for what he does, but how he does it. And we need to trust God for both, and that often is hard to do. But we see it here, just and true are your ways. He's not only praised for his works and what he does and for his ways and how he does them, but he's praised for who he is. Who will not fear you? O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. This brings out worship. All nations will come and worship you. There is none beside him. Holy is a word that means unique and set apart, unlike any other, categorically different, categorically other than us, not some better version than us. He is unique and holy and set apart and perfect and pure. We sing the song, only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in love, power, and in purity. Or we sing a newer song, my God, like you, there is no other. True delight is found in you alone. When we sing words like those, we are echoing the song that's going on in heaven. We're joining the saints in heaven in extolling God for his works, his ways, and who he is. Because when we see that, when we see that glory of God, it compels us to pursue him now and to cling to him for the future. So God's people gather to sing because they've received mercy And that gives them something to sing about. While this is happening, something else is happening. You look in verses 5 through 8. And we see that while the saints are singing of the mercy of God, heaven is preparing for judgment, which is coming in chapter 16. First, the sanctuary is opened, verse 5, but it doesn't stay open for long. Out of the sanctuary comes seven angels, each carrying a bowl that was given to them by the four living creatures. The bowls they're carrying are bowls of wrath that will be poured out on the earth. And as that's happening, the sanctuary is filling with smoke from the glory of God and from His power so that no one could enter the sanctuary. So there's a lot of imagery happening here. So let's not miss the point. This picture harkens back to Moses as well. When smoke would fill the temple and Moses could not enter. It's a picture of God's presence, his holy presence before which none could stand unmediated. Do you realize we need a mediator? We have no right to stand before God and not be instantly annihilated because of our sin. Every sin deserves the full measure of the wrath of God. And so we have no right or grounds to stand before him without someone mediating on our behalf. And that is exactly what Jesus is. Here, the Lamb is the mediator who makes mercy possible for everyone who trusts trusts in Him. But for those who reject that offer of mercy and forgiveness and instead rebel against Him and try to hide from Him, justice is coming. 
Which brings us to chapter 16. Where we see the mercy of God and salvation in chapter 15. In chapter 16 we see the justice of God in judgment. Which is point two. Now as we come to a whole chapter on the judgment of God. I just want to stop and ask a question. When we, when we read tough passages like this about the judgment of God. Um, have you ever thought, you know, gee, just God seems cruel in his judgment. Is God being cruel? Is he being harsh? Does he sound like an old guy with an anger problem who's just lashing out at everybody? Is he, as one atheist put it, just a moral monster? Whether here in, in Revelation 16 or maybe we see, we read passages in the Old Testament as well and whole groups of people being wiped out and we just wonder about that. Is this what God is really like? This seems pretty unfair. Well, our struggle and difficulty here is understandable because we often operate on assumptions about God and humanity that are off base or out of square with Scripture. For example, when we think God is cruel or harsh in his judgment, it's often because we think that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. But we have to understand, what is the crime really? What, what is it? Because when we minimize the sinfulness of sin, then God's judgment on sin will certainly seem overbearing. But the Bible doesn't do that. Another reason we may feel to be cruel, we may feel God is being cruel or harsh in his judgment is because we minimize the mercy and grace that he so patiently extends to sinners day after day. Delaying judgment again and again that they might turn to him for rescue and forgiveness. We forget about that too. Then we see judgment poured out and we think, oh, that, that just seems so random. Like people are just living their lives, just being innocent, going about their day. And God just steps in and wipes them out. What in the world? No, that's not the picture. We, we have misunderstood both God's patience, if we think of it that way. And we've misunderstood the sinfulness of sin, if we think of it that way. When God brings his judgment, it is always after much patience has been extended. We see this throughout the Bible. Ezekiel 33, 11, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. This is the heart of God for the rebels that he has created for his glory, who he has given everything to, and who have shaken their fist in his face in rebellion to him. What is his attitude towards them? He has no pleasure in their death, but that they would turn and live. And he even sent his only son that they might turn and live. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. Hey, grace of God right there. Prophets sent to warn, to tell of the coming of Christ, to Put things in place so that they might be saved. Those who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. The, the grieving heart of Jesus for rebels who are resistant to his extended offers of grace over and over day after day. Romans 10.21 All day long I have held out my hands. To a disobedient and contrary people. 
I just see myself in that so, so much. I am a disobedient and contrary person in so many ways. And yet, God, the picture here is all day long extending his hands in patience. Saying, come, look, live, be saved, find me to be your treasure. Come, this is the, the picture that is delayed judgment, pending judgment, but it is God's patience to delay it. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is the longing heart of God. So judgment and wrath should always be understood against this backdrop of the sinfulness of sin and the patience of God inviting, calling rebels to himself. And that is a grace that is commonly available to all while we're still alive. So it's what we mean by the theological phrase common grace. Now it's grace that is commonly available to all but insufficient to save. It's grace that God allows to, to, to come into people's lives. It, it's not only is that the offer of salvation that is continually extended to all sinners, but think about this. The good that anyone experiences in this lifetime is an expression of God's kindness to them in the hope that they might turn from the gift itself and turn to the giver who granted the gift. And yet so often we become wrapped up in the gift and fail to see the giver and make an idol out of the gift and exchange the giver for the gift. But nonetheless, God's goodness and kindness in everyone's life, universally, is an expression of his grace and his patience that they might turn to him. So Matthew 5.44 says, He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. But as each day passes, God's kindness and mercy and grace and offer of forgiveness gets ignored and rejected and exchanged for something else. So we see in Romans 2.5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. As Pastor Billy pointed out last week, uh, he said this so well, heaven is what sinners experience when they come into the fullness of God's presence without that mediator. And wrath is what they experience when they come into the fullness of God's holy, perfect, I said that backwards, with a mediator. Wrath is what they experience when they encounter God's holy, perfect, pure presence without a mediator. How can you bear and stand up under God's holy, perfect, and pure presence? You can't. If you're a sinner, and that would mean all of us, right? So we can't stand, but we, we need a mediator. And right now, earth right now is marked by this common grace of extending grace, calling sinners to repentance. But what we see as history draws to a close is that even that common grace that restrains evil and is, gra- is going to be gradually withdrawn until what we're left with is a fallen creation and sinful humanity inhabiting God's world with no one to mediate the grace commonly available to all. And that brings us to these seven bowls. The seven bowls of wrath describe the end of all time from seven different perspectives. I don't think it's necessarily a linear, chronological, first this, then that, 
or that it should be interpreted literally. Um, dependent on really how one interprets the book of Revelation, some take these bowls to be literal events and that will happen globally and will be talked about and documented and reported on the news and, and everything like that. Others interpret these images spiritually and see the seven bowls as a picture of perfect, seven being a number of perfection, perfect wrath being poured out on all humanity and all of creation. In other words, the picture is that this is full and it's comprehensive and no matter one's interpretation of Revelation, everyone would agree those who reject Christ will experience it and those who trust in Christ will not. Now, how is it that those who trust in Christ will not experience His wrath? Well, because Christ already bore the wrath of God on the cross in their place. It's not that God just turned the wrath button off. He can't do that. He is perfectly holy. Wrath is what ensues from His nature when it collides with sinful man. It's not optional. Wrath must be satisfied. And that is exactly what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He satisfied the wrath of God. He took the punishment of sin, which is death, in himself so that by way of being our substitute, we would not have to experience said punishment. Wonder of wonder, amazement of amazement. His mercy is more. So the first... Three of these bowls parallel the trumpets back in chapter 8, which were partial. But here the bowls are full and final. Again, these may or may not be literal. I tend to think they're meant to convey a spiritual reality that no one and no thing in all creation will be able to escape the wrath of God when the time comes for it to be poured out. So we're going to look at these very briefly. Uh, the first one is that sores come on people. The second one, the sea, it says, becomes like blood. And the third one, rivers and springs, which would normally be fresh sources of water, uh, turn to blood. And then you come to verse 5, and there's this interlude um, in verse 5 through 7 that says, The angel in charge of the waters said, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Note the reversal here. It's like he's saying, in your thirst for blood, sinful humanity. I know this is, it's kind of gross, right? I mean, all of this talk about blood, but it's, it's meant to be repulsive to us. Um, so it's saying like, in, in all of your thirst for blood, sinful humanity, you wanted to kill Christians, the, the martyrs are standing there around the throne, right? So we know that's at least part of it. But in your thirst for blood, you shed the blood of the saints. It's like God is turning that on their head and saying, now you have your fill of blood. God is pouring out his wrath and giving people what they wanted and what they deserved. It says it there. It is what they deserve. And we know it's what they wanted because they did not repent and give him glory. We see that over and over. The fourth bowl, the sun scorches people with fire. And here we see that comment for the first time. Note that they curse God. They don't repent. They don't give him glory. The fifth bowl is poured out, the beast. It's poured out on the beast's throne. Now, if you were here the last several weeks, you, you can understand how we're thinking of this beast um, as earthly authority and power. That possibly an individual, uh, more likely some group of individuals, but that the beast throne, the world's system, the world's authority is plunged into darkness. And note the refrain again, the people curse and blame God and they do not repent. The sixth bowl is poured out, the river Euphrates dries up. 
In the ancient world, the Euphrates was the outer boundary of the Roman Empire. It was this place beyond which was a place of threatening destruction. It was the final frontier, the final barrier to the known world. And on the other side of that was lots of unknown fears. So as the river dries up, now it's making way for these powers from the east to come across. In other words, that false sense of protection for humanity is removed. And then before we get to the seventh bowl, in verses 13 through 16, we see these demonic spirits assembling the kings of the earth for the battle of Armageddon. Now, I realize this word Armageddon is familiar to our ears, but it's actually an unusual word, and its meaning is not very clear. But what is clear is that we see the demonic spirits and rulers of this world gathering together to make one final attempt to wage war against God. And though they gather for it, it doesn't seem like it actually happens. Uh, We we don't see God and the devil duking it out at the battle of Armageddon. Uh, What we see, rather, is the seventh bowl. But before we get there, we're interrupted by the words of Jesus in verse 15. Do you see that? Stay awake. Keep your garments on. Don't be found naked and exposed. In other words, be spiritually alert. Don't think his coming is a far way off. No, instead be strengthening your faith. Make sure you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This reference to being naked and seen exposed is, is total vulnerability to the wrath of God. That's the idea. The, the, the picture being that what shields you and protects you from that is Christ and his righteousness. Make sure that we're clothed in that and not left naked or exposed to God's judgment. That's why God's glory in salvation actually compels us to pursue him now and cling to him to the very end because it compels us to stay awake and to stay clothed, to be giving ourselves into alertness to what God is doing and who he is and the wonders of the gospel and all of that. So how do we do that? How do we stay awake and be alert and pursue him now and cling to him to the very end? What does that look like? Well, uh, I have a quote in there in your notes. How do we see through their lies and keep ourselves clothed and ready? I love the honesty here. There's no magical formula here. (laughs) Just simple truths that always apply. Here's what you must do. Repent of your sin. Trust in Christ. Join a church where the gospel's preached and the Bible's explained. Read your Bible and pray. Walk with God. Know your Bible. You know, we're not talking about earth-shattering things. Although they are earth-shattering things. There's simple things that every one of us can do. Read the, read the wor- world through the interpretive grid built for you by the Bible. That is a great line. And reject the interpretive grid pushed by the world. Be a student of scripture and reflect on life informed by the scriptures. That is just so good. Finally, we come to the seventh bowl, which is really the climax of it all. Utter destruction. We're talking lightning, earthquakes, thunder, cities falling, islands and mountains fleeing away, massive hail destroying everything. It, it can't get any more catastrophic than, than that. The, the picture here is that it's not just people that's affected, but really all of creation is thrown into upheaval. We know that since the fall, all of creation has been groaning. And that a new creation is coming and will come once this old creation is done away with and he makes all things new. And that's our hope. You know, we, we sang, when we stand 
in glory with the other saints. We, that's the hope that we have that that day is coming. And actually it's the bookends of, uh, that form the beginning of chapter 15 and the end of chapter 16. We saw the sea of glass at the beginning of chapter 15, right? Contrasted here with the total destruction of the created order. Now I say destruction intentionally, not annihilation of the created order, because he will renew the created order, but he will destroy it first before he renews it. And so we see this contrast taking place. The point is this. The sobering point is this. Rather than repenting, these people, in the midst of all of that happening, actually curse God and gather together to wage war against him. I remember a song by Shai Lin, Our God is in the Heavens, and he has a line in there about man balls up his puny fist at God and thinks that he can conquer God. And he said, and the line says, that's like a kid trying to conquer Spain with a super soaker. Uh, <laughs> that's a good picture. Uh, are you really going to contend against God? Well, man in his blindness actually thinks that he can do it and will be successful. They gather together to wage war against them. Really, this whole account, the plagues, the resistance, the hardness of heart, all of this harkens back to the plagues sent on Egypt. Just like Pharaoh, mankind will be unwilling to repent, even in the midst of plagues, and in this case, global destruction. Point? Sometimes we struggle with the justice of God because, again, we assume the goodness of the human heart. As though unbelievers are, are just asking and begging God for forgiveness. And God is the angry judge denying them in his mercy. But that's not the picture at all. When sin has its full effect on the human heart as it does here. What we see here is that sinners continue to reject him. And curse him to their grave. How does this, how does this reality land on you? This means that every single sinner will receive justice. Now we, we say something like that with our boys and we say and what are we? And then if we say every single sinner receives justice. Okay, so what are we? Sinners. Yes, that's right. And so what does that mean we should receive? Justice. Yes, that's right. So what do we do about it? Well, we repent and turn to Jesus who satisfies the justice of God in his death on the cross. And so that's an invitation to all. In the same way that no sinner is going to get away with sin, every sin will be punished. The question is, will you suffer the punishment yourself or will you go to one who has suffered the punishment for you in your place and offers you forgiveness so that you will not have to experience the wrath and judgment of God? So that's the call to come to Jesus. Anyone can do that, and everyone is called to do that, and I invite you to do that as well. If you consider yourself a Christian already, though, how should this truth and these realities affect you in the day-to-day? -day? Well, we've talked about some. We sing because we've been shown mercy in the face of deserved judgment. You know, I, I hope, I mean, I like singing songs that are not about Jesus as well. I mean, music is a gift of God that can be enjoyed. But there is nothing like singing the mercies of God and singing about the character of God and the justice of God. We sing because we have been shown mercy when what we really deserved was judgment. So we better not sing worship songs like we're singing some other 
song because there's no song like the songs we sing when we're singing about the mercy of God. Why? Because what we're singing about has underneath it this reality that I deserved judgment. I I really deserved judgment. So when we say a line like his mercy is more, oh, it, it rings... It rings so much more true when we realize what we deserve. And it seems sort of tacit when we don't think about what we deserve. But we sing because we've been shown mercy. We pursue Christ personally and passionately. Do you realize sin takes no days off? Neither should we. Sin is always running after us, seeking to lure us into its ways, seeking to distract us and to derail us that we might not cling to Jesus to the very end, that we might jump ship, that we might deconstruct. Sin is constantly pulling on our minds and hearts to get us off the track and it has taken many off the track. But God gives the grace of this passage to keep us on the track, to keep us pursuing him personally, pursuing him passionately and clinging to him to the very end. That's how we let these truths land on us because there are eternal realities at play that we're aware of. This also affects just the way we parent and how we talk to our kids about the gospel and the storyline of the Bible. It should affect how we conduct our work and our business in a way that bestows God's grace on our community, on the humanity that we work with. This should inform our work ethic. In, In me as a business owner, how I think about customer service, how I treat other people, how I view money. As a tool that God has entrusted to me to be stewarded wisely and well for his glory. All of those things should never be detached from these eternal realities that we're talking about. Instead, the, the fact that God's glory and salvation and judgment compels us to pursue him. That reality also informs how we think about our jobs and our work. And how we treat co-workers and how we treat customers and how we view money. And all of those things. We want to conduct our business and work in a way that bestows this common grace on the people that we're seeking to serve in our community. So it affects work. It also means we share Christ with whoever we can. Because the days are short and we're commanded to be awake, to stay awake, to not fall asleep, which is so easy to do. So to wrap this up, so Eric's going to, we have time to close uh, in that song, Eric, or whichever one you feel led to do. Hey, all right. And I looked and behold, one with the appearance of Eric was, uh, now we'll wrap this up. God will... Here's it in a nutshell. God will save those who will trust him and he will judge those who will not. You will either experience judgment or you will experience restoration, renewal, redemption, forgiveness. And where you stand with Christ is what determines one or the other. Are you in Christ? Are you in his righteousness? Are you counted among those who have been had their sinful garments washed clean by the Lamb, by His death? Are you banking on His righteousness and not your own? Because whether judgment or restoration, both of them are certain. And so as believers especially, may we be found hidden in Christ with God. And may His glory and salvation and judgment compel us really compel us. Every aspect of our lives. Holistically, how we think of everything. May the the glory of God in both salvation and judgment compel us to live for that glory, to pursue Him now, and to cling to Him to the very end as we
come into these last days. Let's stand together. We pray. Give us, give us grace. Encourage our hearts. Help us look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.